Welcome to this Center for Sport and Human Rights podcast series focusing on the sport-related impacts of COVID-19 on children. I'm Mary Harvey, CEO of the Center for Sport and Human Rights. Today, we continue the conversation started in episode one concerning the impacts associated with the absence of sport and that impact on children. Today, we look specifically at the impacts felt by children in humanitarian situations, as well as the difficulties faced by sport for development programs. Thank you for joining us today. And here's your host, Kirsty Burroughs. Hello, and a warm welcome to the second episode of the Centre for Sport and Human Rights podcast series, focusing on the sport-related impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on children. COVID-19 has substantially impacted our lives in almost every way, and the world of sport is no exception. In our first episode, we focused on the physical and mental health impacts associated with the absence or restriction of sport. Today, we look to discuss how children's safety can be addressed in, through and around sport, and the effect that the pandemic and the resulting reduction in organised sport is having. We'll also explore the impacts on sport for development programmes and the concept of sport as a safe haven. I'm joined today by an exceptional panel of guests. It's my great pleasure to welcome and introduce Liz Twyford, Programme Specialist at UNICEF, Mark Mungal, co-founder of the Caribbean Sport and Development Agency, Dr. Morten Schmidt, Director of Programs and Grants at the Laureus Sport for Good Foundation, and Mariona Miret, Head of Programs at the Barca Foundation. So thank you so much to you all for being here. So as we know, policies around the world have been implemented to restrict the spread of COVID-19. And some of these policies have had a direct impact on sport and the, the ability for children to play. Whereas previously, millions of young people around the world were able to participate in sport each day, that access to sport has been severely limited or in some cases completely taken away. Due to these restrictions, children around the world are facing many different challenges caused by their lack of access to sport. So my first question to our panellists is, and perhaps I'll, I'll come to you first, Morton, I'd like to ask what the impact is that you're seeing or you foresee the absence of sport having on the lives of young people that you're working with? Thank you, Kirsty. Well, unfortunately, inequality hasn't gone on lockdown nor has any of the ugly phases of inequality in, in the world, which includes violence, discrimination, poverty. And so all of these issues continue to exist. And for organizations working in the sport for development space, uh, I think generally we see an exacerbation of the issue among children and young people, which at the end of the day are the, the, the end beneficiaries or rather the participants in the programs that we are supporting across the world. And of course, less physical activity is, is one of the complicated ones. Uh, and maybe seen in the context of the report we saw from WHO coming out last week, once again, emphasizing the importance of physical activity. Seen in the context of the, the UN General Secretary's report to this General Assembly earlier this year, again, emphasizing the importance of physical activity. Seeing less physical activity comes with a whole range of issues. Uh, that is directly linked to physical health of children and young people and to mental health and well-being of, of children and young people. And what we're seeing and what we're hearing back from our partner organizations, uh, it includes increasing levels of stress and anxiety. It, inc it includes increasing levels of, of social isolation. 
we see and we hear report from from our partners increases in child abuse and in in uh, deterioration of the vulnerabilities or worsening of the vulnerabilities to to abuse as well and then we see increase in domestic violence and abuse as well we see children having more difficulties accessing and benefiting from from education uh, with schools closing down or schools trying to deliver education as usual, but but struggling with it as well because of the difficulties in the current situation, and then very tangibly, youth unemployment is on the on the rise quite dramatically uh, across the world. And if you run run back to what I said initially, uh, inequality hasn't gone into lockdown. Well, we certainly see it in youth unemployment. We certainly see that the most vulnerable communities are the ones struggling the most in the context of, of this global pandemic that we are facing. Thank you very much, Morton. And um, you mentioned there about um, domestic violence, increases in domestic violence. And um, it's true that, you know, globally, it's estimated that up to one billion children aged two to 17 have experienced physical, sexual or emotional violence or neglect in the past year. And we know that the, the um, COVID-19 pandemic and, and lockdown regulations has exacerbated this and the risk of children either experiencing or witnessing um, domestic violence um, is increased. We're seeing increased calls to child's hotlines around the world. Um, Mark, I'd, maybe perhaps I could come to you uh, regarding this question of whether, you know, for some children, um, perhaps sport represented a, a physical and psychological safe space and that, you know, the, the COVID-19 and restrictions, the absence of sport means that that safe space has been taken away. Do you share the viewpoint that sport can be a safe haven for children? Yeah, good question. I mean, I am not myself a child protection expert, but um, I'm sometimes approached by the child protection specialists in the region for advice on, on sport-related cases. And I, I can confirm that there are situations arise, arising out of um, the pandemic lockdowns that certainly, is, as you said, may have exacerbated the risk for some children. I think the, the obvious being um, the increased time spent in those unstable home environments um, we know that uh, in the region here as well, in, in, the, in the Caribbean, that we have seen an increase in reports of domestic violence linked to COVID-19 and, as I said, likely to be aggravated by the, I mean, lots of things, including the harsh economic realities and, and increased tensions at homes. And I think a, a serious dilemma is that the children who would have found a safe haven and, and support in the sport environment may now be reaching out for support from maybe less trusted sources, including online sources, where they may end up putting themselves at even higher risk of abuse. So, so not only have they lost their safe haven in the sport environment, but now they are likely to be more vulnerable or, or to less trusted sources of support, particularly, um, particularly online support. And I, I think uh, to put things in concept, in context, I, I accept that the majority of children worldwide enjoy um, safe and, and positive sport experiences. And, and we know that sport provides that space for them to be respected and valued and, and cared for and so on. And, uh, and to be provided with amazing and, and valuable opportunity to, opportunities to, um, to learn skills and, and knowledge and, and a wide range of life lessons. But I also acknowledge that sport is a real and an authentic environment, which means that it brings with it all of the realities of life, the, the good, 
which includes the contribution to health and education and pro-social development, etc., but also the bad, the cheating, the violence, the discrimination, the substance abuse that's a part of sport. And then what we refer to oftentimes as the ugly, the physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. So yes, sport can be a safe haven for children. Um, and that happens best when we put safeguards in place uh, to protect and, and to respect the rights of children. Thank you, Mark. And this point, how potentially sports organisation can use this hiatus to make sure that safeguarding policies are in place, is one that I'd really like to return to. But, but before we do so, I'd like to go to Liz and ask for your perspective regarding the concept of sport as a safe haven. Do you share the viewpoint that sport can be a safe haven for children around the world? Like Mark, um, I've seen many examples where sport has provided a, a safe haven for children. I think what's really important is that happens when you've got the right people delivering the right activities with the right equipment. Um, and if you miss some of those things, then sport might not be the safe haven that we all hope it, it can be. So I think that the having the safeguards in place is really, really important to guarantee that, that safe haven, um, to guarantee that space where people are able to share and speak and develop the relationships that they need to support them both on the field and off the field. And I, I think one of the really protective things around team sport in particular is that peer relationship that they can develop, that supportive peer network that participants can develop with their, their friends and their colleagues that they can carry off the field of play, that can support them in their life when they're facing other challenges, perhaps at home or perhaps in the community. So I absolutely agree sport can be a safe haven. I also absolutely agree it isn't always a safe haven. And we know, we know from uh, the, the headlines and we know from the things that never make the headlines that lots of children do experience abuse within the context of sport. And so I think we have to be very careful about that, not talking about universals and, and talking in a nuanced way about the role that sport can play in children's lives. Thank you very much, Liz. Mariana, I'd like to ask you, you know, so it's a, it's a really interesting discussion. And the fact that you mentioned at the beginning that, that the work of the Barca Foundation is looking to see how you can support children through sport and through play. How are you finding that your programs have been impacted during the COVID-19 pandemic? And, and are you having to find other ways in which to deliver programs uh, of the Barca Foundation? Well, the fact that uh, all the confinement that, that children could not have face-to-face -face activities uh, with other children, that, of course, affected the whole programs, I think, not only for Barca Foundation, but of all sport for development uh, programs. Um, and this, what, what we had to do, first of all, was uh, see what, if we could find an innovative way to keep the support to the, the vulnerable children and to keep the contact because at the end uh, if you have well-trained uh, coaches educators to have this lens uh, on social inclusion on detecting any case of, of uh, no normal situation that could be for example uh, an abuse from their domestic environment or from another uh, Peer, uh, etc. Um, so to keep this contact from the educators and the grassroots organizations with with those communities could allow to at least kind of uh, have a primary uh, protection uh, layer. You no, know, that. Uh, but I, because I agree uh, with 
with um, with Liz that not all sports are safe. Uh, but if if the methodologies, the tools that the educators, the coaches are properly trained, it can be a, a very safe space, and it can be a place where these children can express and can learn and can develop themselves to be more resilient as well. So uh, on on the pandemic uh, time, we try to adapt. Uh, at least on an online version, what we would do uh, in previously face-to-face, -face, having online sessions and when uh, connection was a problem because, uh, as we said, we normally um, uh, serve to very vulnerable communities, at least a phone call, a simple phone call with an educator that have distrust with the, with, uh, the kids would, could allow to detect if something was not normal and then you know, all the social services can be put at in in uh, in alarm uh, phase. Um, but there is need to to have to keep this content. I think that would be the essential aspect that even if the face to face is not um, possible, uh, we can adapt to have a minimum contact with uh, with the participants, with the beneficiaries, to make sure that we keep at least a layer of of this safe space. Very much, Mariana. And uh, just open question to all of our speakers: Have we, have you heard of any programs or any initiatives where sports organisations are actively looking to try and help children and young people who are at an increased risk of um, domestic violence at this time, or due to the magnification of inequalities related, uh, because of the pandemic, are looking to provide um, some of that support? Have you, has any of our speakers heard of any interesting initiatives? Uh, please go ahead, Morton. Thank you. Uh, yeah, well, early on, we knew that there were these impacts. We already, back in March, April, May, we, we began to learn about the massive increases in, in calls to hotlines, domestic abuse, child abuse hotlines. So fairly early on, we realized that, that we needed to do something. There were some secondary effects that were not being addressed through the public restrictions or public policies. And, and as a sector, all of these issues are things that, that all of us are addressing. Uh, and I'm sure all across the board of, of all the participants in this conversation as well. Um, but with changing conditions, we needed to figure out a way to support all of our partners, all of our networks to, to continue engaging, to continue providing a safe haven, even if it's not in the football pitch or on the running track, uh, figure out a way of, of providing the social network through which uh, many of the participants are seeking and finding their support in, in their day-to-day -day lives. So we launched together with the um, with Beyond Sport, we launched something we call the Sport for Good Response Fund, which was not about humanitarian action, quite, quite the contrary. We could easily see all the risks associated with a bunch of um, uh, sports enthusiasts going out trying to, to do humanitarian action, which all of us wanted to do, but it also came with a lot of risk. And when launching that call for proposal in the spring, we began to see uh, quite a lot of very exciting and interesting initiatives, all ranging from, from adapting their, their standard curriculum to be used online or to be used at home under guidance from the parents or from guidance of siblings uh, to quite purposeful interventions. And one of the ones that really fit the, 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 the description that you're asking for, Kirsty, is a program that we're supporting in Brazil in partnership with the Swiss Philanthropy Foundation uh, run by one of our long-standing partners, uh, Fight for Peace, Luta Pela Paz, 
in the Mare Favela in northern Rio de Janeiro, uh, where in the spring, early summer, they started getting increasing number of, of, of uh, people contacting them, young women contact them, contacting them regarding incidents of violence, gender-based violence, quite quite dramatic increases in the occurrence of, of violence against women and girls. And as a response to that, they, they uh, I wouldn't say that they threw out the rule book. Um, they continued, uh, based on their experience from running sports-based programs in the community, they developed a number of additional intervention types that they linked into their sports program, which among other included a comms campaign, a communications campaign uh, to promote gender equality and to discuss gender equality with the community reaching out to at least 20,000 people uh, in the favela, uh, including discussing the, the right to live a life free of violence, uh, which is one of the essential ones. For victims of violence, uh, they provide, uh, they set up a way of providing social or uh, social support, psychosocial support for the victims. They set up a hotline for victims to call in, in the community. And they have provided referrals to service centers all throughout the favela and neighboring areas uh, for the victims as well. And then the longer term plan is to use this as a platform for, for including and integrating these young women into the programs that they're running uh, in the favela in any case. Uh, but I would also say that many of the organizations are trying to find their ways to support. All of the organizations that we're working with, they they really want to be there they really want to make a difference for their community so they're trying to do things through radio campaigns they're trying to do things through social media platforms whatsapp groups direct outreach etc 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 and everyone is aiming at supporting kids and, and young people who are caught up in in many cases with the perpetrators at home um, so times are challenging uh, they can't deliver their standard programs, but they all try to adapt in one way or another. It's very, very rarely that we see organizations who are only only, only committed to surviving so they can be there at the other end of, of the crisis. Thank you so much. Um, are there any other initiatives that anyone would like to highlight before I, um, because you brought me to a great point there, uh, Morton, but any other initiatives that people might want to highlight? Kirsty, may I, Mark here, just to jump in, Kirsty, I think uh, unlike um, Morton, uh, the fantastic work that uh, he shared there uh, that's directly responding to domestic violence, I think what we have observed in the Caribbean is that several of the, the sport organizations in the region have been stepping up to address issues that broadly cause harm to children. And so although the efforts may not be directed at domestic violence per se, I think there's certainly an increase in efforts to educate persons in the sports sector about their roles and responsibilities of individuals and organizations involved in sport, uh, specifically as it pertains to safeguarding children and young people. So we've had loads of webinars and online workshops from several organizations in Jamaica, here in Trinidad and others, and collaboration too. There's been a lot of good collaboration. So we've had a National Olympic Committee collaborating with uh, non-government organizations, children's uh, agencies, and um, and the ministries of sport, for example, working and including uh, safeguarding workshops in their online community coaching program. So, so I say, I think that COVID nineteen has has had a positive influence on on some sport orgs um, who we've seen investing more in safeguarding children more broadly, and I think that then kind of 
flows out to uh, a broader awareness among the general public too. So I think it's um, yeah, kudos to those organizations who have now seen seen it fit to add uh, safeguarding as a core part of the work that they're doing. And if I can just build on Mark's point, another thing that we've seen here in the UK are those in the sports sector using the platform that they have to provide support to the the domestic violence prevention sector. So, for example, Chelsea Football Club uh, joined up with the UK charity Refuge to both raise awareness and raise funds to support their work um, supporting women and children who are experiencing domestic abuse during the pandemic. Um, and FIFA worked alongside the European Commission and the WHO to launch the hashtag safe home campaign to support those at risk from domestic violence. So I think it's interesting as well, looking at how sports organizations can use the platform that they have to reach a broader audience with some of these messages. Kirsty, just to add to, to Liz, uh, for example, in the case of Barca Foundation, I think during the pandemic also we learned how we could be this speaker, not this voice for, for for people in need. And one thing we developed was uh, some guidelines for positive parenting, uh, which could help uh, uh, to be disseminated through our, our networks, but also to help the grassroots organizations who are at the end are embedded on the communities and can have this access to these children and, and youth who are at risk uh, to help them, to disseminate through them, uh, through these organizations, uh, a tool, different tools, because at the end, the, the non channels are very important and we really uh, uh, think that they must be there, but we also need to uh, to promote tools to, to help people. So um, with these positive parenting guidelines could help also families to better understand what is, uh, what is appropriate and how we, they can help to be a, a better uh, parent as well. Thank you so much. Some incredible initiatives there. And I think what I'm hearing is that sport can be a vehicle through which we can tackle complex sociocultural issues, but there also must be safeguards within sport to make sure that it's a safe place and it's an environment which is conducive to learning the values of, of sport and, and a fair play. And as you mentioned, Mark, there is the good, the bad and the ugly side of sport. And this hiatus might be a good time also for sports organisations to take the opportunity to look at their safeguarding policies and procedures or their lack of policies and procedures, and start to make certain that they are implementing these safeguarding mechanisms. Discussing safeguarding, and I'll jump to you now, Liz, would you be able to explain more what the term safeguarding means in this context, and also how sports organisations could potentially use this downtime to ensure that we implement mechanisms to build sport back safer? Thanks, Kirsty. Yes, safeguarding is a term that is gaining prominence within the world of sport, but it does have a bit of a UK origin. So it's really helpful, I think, to spend a bit of time defining what we mean when we use this this term safeguarding. Um, and from our perspective, when we use it, when we use the term safeguarding, we're talking about prevention and response. So we're talking about preventing bad things happening by understanding risk and acting to reduce that risk, be that risk of people, locations, um, travel, transport. And it's also about responding when, when you're concerned that harm might be happening. So it's about having the systems in place to protect both the children that you work with and the staff who work with those children so that they know what to do if they have concerns about somebody. 
So it's prevention and response. It's the full umbrella, umbrella term for how we make sure that the people that we have a duty of care for are kept safe in our activities. Um, in terms of how we make sure that sport is brought back safer, I think Mark um, has already talked about some of the, the great things that are happening in the Caribbean in, in terms of organisations there using this time to really reflect on how they can strengthen their safeguarding systems. A similar thing is, is happening um, outside of the Caribbean as well, so particularly in the Pacific led by Child Fund and the Pass It Back initiative. They've been doing some great work with a series of webinars to build capacity in sports organizations across the Pacific and also in Asia around safeguarding. So maybe I can hand over to Morton because I know early on in the pandemic, we were having a conversation about safeguarding in the virtual space with lots of organizations pivoting to virtual activities, it created a new field of play for those organisations where perhaps they were a bit less familiar about some of the risks and how to prevent those risks um, becoming harm for children. And so I know Laureus has been doing some work in promoting safe virtual activity as well. So there's been lots going on. And I think it's really heartening to see how many organisations have used this opportunity to look at their their safeguarding practice and to take the time to learn and build back better. Well, as you, you could hear earlier, um, what, what, what we have seen is that many organizations during lockdown, during restrictions of all, all sorts, they have tried to find other ways of reaching out to, to kids and young people. Fairly early on, we could see that a lot of organizations were moving into spaces where they normally don't engage. Uh, whether it's doing um, Instagram sessions or Facebook sessions or WhatsApp sessions or YouTube sessions or having uh, WhatsApp groups and working directly in via virtual means for children and young people. We kind of got a little bit worried, um, a, a bit of a sweat broke on our forehead uh, when we started revisiting some of the safeguarding policies of all these organizations. Because all of our safeguarding in the sector Laurie's included at that point in time, was entirely geared towards delivery of conventional sport for development programs, conventional sport activities in the conventional place for sports activities. They were not designed for online. They were not designed for virtual engagement. Um, so we did begin very early on to look into what, what, what can we do? Uh, so I think already in, in April, and share guidelines uh, very kindly thought through by, by UNICEF and Liz and her colleagues. Um, share them through the space, having online sessions that involved our entire portfolio of partners from across the world to discuss how we can improve. Um, and from that, we can see many of our partners effectively are beginning to review their policies and procedures to be, become more sensitive towards all the new challenges that, that comes from working in the virtual space. Um, just um, very agree with Lisa and Morton how the cyberspace have increased these other ways of violence through online. Uh, we have a specific program on, on bullying and uh, cyberbullying prevention, and we could really see how the data on, on children affected by cyberbullying and, and other ways of violence uh, through online had significantly increased. 
during the lockdown. So it's something we don't we have to really uh, uh, take care of, not only in sports but also in the overall uh, environment of the children, um, because they have continuous access now on, on digital uh, networks. And, and here, just to mention, for example, when we realized that, uh, and we could, we were already uh, alert because it, it was a clear risk uh, with all the the online um, to to use. No, those that were saying, I think sport organizations also needs to have this role of of passing prevention message. And, and we use an initiative that was called Cules at Home, like Barca fans at home, uh, through the, the network of Barca. And we uh, pass different message of how to prevent this, to help children, but also to, have family, to help families to prevent on this uh, online violence, because for sure it has increased during the lockdown. Thank you, Mariona. I, I think it's really interesting that we're seeing, as you say, we will not know for a long time the multitude of impacts of the coronavirus pandemic on children in sport or, or in general in society. But we are seeing trends, as you say, increases in cyberbullying. And there are risks with online engagement. Um, for example, you know, perpetrators, unfortunately, finding ways to be able to access vulnerable people or children. And these prevention initiatives that you mentioned, therefore, are really fundamental. I'd like to ask you how you think we can involve children and the voices of children in such programs. Um, children participation should be a must in all the programs, uh, not only in the implementation, but also in the design. So uh, when we are, if we hear their voices since the beginning, uh, then it will also facilitate this platform for them to, to be able to, to let us know uh, what, what is best for them. Um, so children participation should be a must. And also um, to have... Uh, the, at the end, the educators and the coaches that are uh, close to close with the children also should have the lens to ask them uh, and to have this uh, this approach uh, to to ensure uh, their participation, but also to adapt what the program uh, is is doing in, in being able no to to make it uh, at the end. Uh, the most appropriate and the most tailored for that group of children that we're working with, especially if there are concerns of, of um, um, problems of inclusive uh, um, activities or, or problems of uh, uh, children that are at risk or that are facing uh, traumatized situations. Uh, these, these coaches and educators need to have these tools. So I think also a part of having the children participation um, in all the, the program cycle, also to have well-trained teachers and educators and coaches that also should be key to make sure that these voices are here. Because if not, if the lens are not there, it will be difficult to identify when they're trying to, to express something. Uh, and on the other hand as well, uh, at more higher level maybe the grassroots organizations so if the programs involve grassroots organizations that are local actors that well known the community would also help to have uh, these voices there thank you mariona did anybody else want to come in on that point as well thanks kirsty um just to echo what mariona has said um child participation is a must in fact it's it's a right for children to be 
meaningfully um, involved in, in issues that affect their lives. Um, but I think the reality is there's lots of nervousness around doing it well. I think organisations maybe have good intentions around meaningful child um, participation, but they're worried about doing it wrong. And so that stops them doing it at all. Um, and so we lose out on all that rich expertise and, and involvement of children from the outset because we, we, we get nervous about how to engage with children. So it is important to do it safely and to do it meaningfully. But there are some great pieces of guidance out there to help organisations if they're doing it for the first time. So I'd really draw people's attention to every child's right to be heard. Um, that outlines the nine basic requirements for effective and ethical participation of children and talks organisations through the steps that they need to take to do it well. So um, I suppose the bottom line is it needs to happen, but we need to, to support organisations to feel confident to do it well. Um, and, and I do think there is, there is lots of support out there to help organisations do that. Uh, just just to add to Marianne and, and Liz, yeah, I, I agree. Um, and, and you're right, children have a right to be heard. And, and I think their voices are, are critical in, in anything that we do. I, I think that general concept of listening to the voices of people uh, at its purest level should really engage everyone. And the more voices we hear, the, I think the better the impact of what we're doing. Um, and, and remember that in communities, usually um, the, the the members of that community themselves are often implicated in, in any crisis that would affect children. And and so in those types of cases, it's not just about what's right for the children, but it's it's how do we get into that community to, to have that conversation uh, without creating uh, more tension. And, and of course, those conversations can only have um, impact can only resonate with community when when you establish relationships with with, with those who are engaged. So, I, I think that um, when we're thinking about listening to the voices of children and, and others in the community, because I think children's voices are important, but I think we also need to listen to the other voices, including those who may be themselves facilitators of the problem that we're trying to address. And and then your your challenge is building relationships capturing the conversations in spaces where they are comfortable. And, um, and I think based on that, then you're more likely to have them engage and, and potentially to have them respond positively to the type of changes that you're trying to, trying to bring about in those communities. Thank you very much indeed uh, uh, for, for, for that example, Mark. And, and Morton, I saw you wanted to come in there as well. I think it's important that we also recognize the sector that we're working in, the kind of organizations we're working with in, in our sector. The vast, vast majority of organizations are, and, and clubs are small. They're community-based. They're very closely intertwined with their communities and, and have the finger on the pulse in the communities. Uh, I think I agree very much with what Liz is saying, that many organizations struggling a bit with finding ways of, of providing a voice for children and young people participating in the program, but I don't think it's out of, of bad will. It's not because they're blinded by their own methodology or their own approach. It is possibly because they're, they're, they're a bit uncertain about how best to do it. Um, and as Mark says, yes, we need their voices. We need the voices of other people in the community. And I think an important thing to consider for organizations such as ours, uh, the ones gathered here and other international organizations and foundations, et cetera, 
is that it's not just a matter of listening to the voices. It's a matter of allowing the community to take decisions for themselves. So uh, an, an important role that we can play is to enable that to happen. Uh, we run a series of programs in the US and Europe and starting up in Asia and Latin America, where we, we try to get local community-based organizations together, organizations who have been working in silos for the entirety of their existence, never collaborated, never coordinated, never discussed what, what kind of priority issues there is in the community, never much consulted with, with children and young people in the communities either. Uh, and we are trying to facilitate for better, for worse, a space where they can get together, where they can have these kind of conversations, where they can discuss how best to consult with people in the community uh, and come to agreements on what the community wants to achieve. And then putting resources uh, into those kind of initiatives, allowing for these communities to take their own decisions on what they want to do, what they want to fund, how they want to follow up on it, how they want to measure their performance, not as imposition from, from some fancy office in London, uh, but from the, the, the community itself. It's by the community for the community. I think this is really fascinating and it's great for us to hear about, you know, the important role that sport can play as a vehicle to tackle some of these complex sociocultural issues and how sports organizations have really pivoted during the pandemic to try to continue to engage with and support children in different ways and as you say some of the challenges that can bring you know as we move increasingly to online interaction how can we ensure that children are protected in that space one of the things i'd like to ask now is is whether you see challenges facing sport for development programs as the result of the pandemic perhaps concerns regarding the availability of funding for foundations and providers of assistance and especially those working with children at the grassroots and community level i'll jump in then um, i think uh, actually the the challenges that we we've been facing at least for the smaller sport for development organizations um that they're not new and um, i think over the last maybe five years in particular, we've seen a significant decline in the global support um, for, for SDP programs. And, um, and so the challenges with SDP funding are, are, and resourcing are, are not necessarily new. I think um, SDP organizations have been resourceful and, and they've been creative in, in continuing to survive despite the, the funding challenges. I, I think for me anyways, the, the major challenge that the COVID-19 has introduced in the implementation of, of programs is, as uh, Morton articulated earlier, was and is particularly because of the traditional mode of, of how we deliver the programs with our very strong emphasis on face-to-face -face and group interactions and so on. Um, and that kind of reliance on, on very practical activities that are not easily transferable to the online setting. So I think uh, that, that's where our major challenge will be. And, and we've been trying to come up with ways to address that with the online platforms and so on. As, as far as funding for uh, STP programming and support for the type of work that we're doing around safeguarding and so on, I think um, we need to, to, to shift the, the conversation away from that um, kind of donor beneficiary model to what we've been talking about as an investment model. So that I think it requires that we, we show the value of what we are offering as a sort of reflection of some sort of um, a return on the investment. So, but the only way we could do that to, to show the value or the, or the worth of the, the work that we're doing in, in sport for development and peace, particularly among the smaller organizations, that we had to believe in it ourselves. We had to believe that is something of value that can attract 
the interests of not donors but investors and I know when I when I have this conversation with other people, they think that I'm kind of lunatic and you know that's crazy thinking. But just think about the evolution of professional sport and and how I mean, a hundred years ago, maybe less than fifty years ago, we would play football and cricket and everything else for fun, and we would be happy to play for a national team or club team, and they'd probably pick up the tab for us to travel and so on. But now that those fun and games is a is a, is a billion dollar industry. And you can't get anybody to play T20 cricket in the Caribbean unless you sign a big check for them, you know. So I think the challenge is that people who are involved in this SDP sector, the the sport for development and peace sector, who are primarily from non-profit NGO kind of uh, settings, they're so caught up in in the work that we do and, and ensuring that we generate these outcomes, these health outcomes, these education outcomes, these broad development outcomes. And I think we've neglected the development of uh, a sort of a value proposition for the services that we offer. So I think um, that's a challenge, but I think that the, the, in, in the con- I think COVID-19 maybe is going to kind of push us to pivot, if you wish, and to start thinking about the real value of the work that we do, not as charity work that, um, that we have to be stretching our arms out to donors, can you help me please, but rather to present what we're doing as absolutely valuable that has worth and that has a, a, a possibility of um, investors getting a return on their investment, not just soft return. I mean, like a financial return on the investment. And that, that's, I think, a new challenge for us that uh, that we need to be exploring. I agree completely with, with Mark. We need to look into the return on investment. If we look at, at our programs, the ones that we are supporting, and we compare them with other more conventional programs, uh, it strikes me that sport for development programs, and I come from a long, long history in international development, the sport for development programs are actually quite cheap. Uh, they don't require necessarily very large infrastructure investments uh, that are not already there. Much of the infrastructure is already in place. So they don't really require much new heavy investments. And by and large, they are quite cheap interventions compared to the depth and the longevity of the, the impact that they're having on, on children and young people entering through this type of programs in a prolonged period and where the program is delivered in adapted and purposeful and an appropriate way to, to children and young people. Uh, so I think there's a huge potential in, in developing the business around it. We are also at a point in time where, well, unfortunately, and we see it in the UK throughout this week, UK government's decision to reduce international development aid from 0.7% to 0.5% of the gross domestic product, no, the gross domestic income, um, that is going to to hit the charity sector very, very, very hard. Uh, We're a sector, sport for development and peace, that is a little bit on the fringes, a little bit, bit, it's a new mushrooming sector on international development. And I suspect that this kind of sector might be among the first ones to, to suffer the impact of the reductions that we're seeing in international development aid. But even within domestic financing, local governments, uh, regional, national governments, at all levels are, are reducing their investment into this kind of programming. So I do anticipate some, some longer term effect on our ability, our sector's ability to operate, which is why uh, the things that Mark is saying around identifying the return on investment, showing the, the, the cost efficiency of the intervention becomes so much more important. So definitely a way to go. 
um, but also more just down on the ground, very pragmatically. There are some real operational issues that, that sport for development and peace programs need to deal with. And that is something we didn't really think about when we, when we went into lockdown, but which we can see now that we are beginning to transition out of lockdown after the first wave. Now, soon we're going to transition out of the second wave, certainly in our part of the world. Other parts, they're already in the third wave and talking about the fourth wave. Uh, but transitioning out, no matter which wave we're talking about, is going to pose new challenges. One is the sedentary lifestyle that is, that is evolving, which is a real issue. And we could see it certainly in, linked to some of the response fund uh, that I mentioned earlier, the Sport for Good response fund proposals that we saw, focusing on the challenges related to getting children and young people to be physically active again in an environment where they for months have not been physically active, developed other interests, et cetera. So getting them back to the pitch, getting them back to the track, et cetera, that's going to be a, a challenge. And another challenge is that physical activity, in spite of everything we hear from the group here, from the UN, uh, from the World Health Organization, et cetera, about the benefits of physical education, um, schools are looking towards physical education as the first place to start cutting and to start reducing time. And we can see that a lot of our partners across the world, they depend on school, they depend on physical education space for delivering their programs in partnership and collaboration with school. But if the school is, is reducing its physical education with 50%, there won't be any room any longer for that kind of collaboration. There won't be access to, to children and young people in the education system. Uh, and these are real, very, very tangible challenges that many organizations are going to face uh, on the ground when they start delivering their conventional programs again. And, and I, think, I think it's the same problem in schools as it is in the international development sector, that the sport piece is seen as the, the kind of fluffy, nice to have. It's the, the thing that's the icing on the cake, but, you know, you can keep the cake and lose the icing and you've still got the cake there. And I think that's the challenge that we see that, that, too many people don't understand the real value of sport for development and, and physical activity. Um, and so it gets sidelined. And, and we're seeing that children are facing the biggest crisis since World War II. And sport has a vital role to play in supporting children back at the other end of that crisis. So if we don't see sport for development playing a core role, that's going to be a, a bigger crisis for children. Kirsty, maybe just very short, uh, but to to end up with this uh, with this um, concept that I think all of you at the end, what we're saying is that we really need to improve of how we show, how we demonstrate this impact. Because if we have better uh, ways to to demonstrate that is uh, sport and sport for development can be uh, an element, a basic element as a basic need that. Also, we could be seen as as how you know as a contribution to this uh, um, improvement. And I have a very short example. But during this uh, second lockdown here in Barcelona, um, we have a program in a very very um, a vulnerable neighborhood where the the authorities, the health authorities, allowed us to keep the program there, the face to face program, because it was seen. As a, as a social um, benefit for those children. So, but this is a very small example. 
but that, but just to say that when we can when we are able to show that it has an impact on children uh, for health, mental health, uh, and inclusive uh, social inclusion objectives, etc., then we will be seen also as a, as a sector that can can contribute uh, to the SDGs, but especially to the a better life for a children that is at risk. This has been a wonderful discussion and I really hate for it to end. But as we as we do near the end of this episode, I'd like to pose one final question to all of you. And that's a start, stop and continue question. As we mentioned, the COVID-19 pandemic is one of the biggest worldwide crises affecting children and has sparked a number of shadow pandemics affecting the lives and well-being of children the world over. So as we look at the impacts of this pandemic on children around the world and consider not only its, its, its terrible threats, but also perhaps take stock of what we might do to better help and support children through sport, what recommendations would you have for sports organisations or, or sport for development programmes? What should they stop, start and continue doing to help sport really be part of the solution? So we'll, go, we'll start off with Morton. Thank you, Morton. Don't work in silos. When you work in silos, you tend to, to close around your own methodology, your own approach. You, you tend to become a little bit on the self-sufficient side. Um, and you tend to seek affirmation of, of the type of work that you're doing rather than challenge yourself. So I certainly think don't work in silos. So silos is an important message for, for sport for development organizations. Also think many organizations started out very... Um, very nervous about what to do in this situation. Uh, and they look inwards instead of look outwards uh, when trying to find themselves in a new critical pandemic and trying to find an answer to all the secondary effects of, of COVID-19. Uh, our recommendation is reach out to others. Uh, ask your donors about what other organizations are doing. Uh, ask your community, as we discussed a bit earlier, uh, what are they looking for for support? Uh, allow everyone around you to challenge the way that you're working, challenge the way that you're thinking. And don't ever let your usual way of working become a straitjacket for you as an organization. So I think think out of the box, um, but make sure that you know your community. First and foremost, make sure, sure that you know your community and know, make sure that you know your issue and that you understand the premises of your issue. Thank you so much, Morton. Um, Liz, perhaps I could come to you. Thanks, Kirsty. Um, so many interesting and innovative approaches have been developed over the last year. And so I think the continue message is continue adapting, continue innovating, continue trying new things. We've seen sport for development organizations break new ground and develop new initiatives on very short timescales. And so I think that that nimbleness and that um, approach to innovation needs to continue. In terms of start, um, I would say that organizations could be more explicit about the way that their work contributes to the SDGs. It contributes in the area of mental health, in physical health, but in lots of other areas as well. Um, but I think too often organizations don't talk about their impact in relation to the SDGs. And I think there's a really valuable piece of work going on globally, looking at how we collectively account for all of the impact of sport on the SDGs. And I think it's really important for organizations to talk about those, their impact in those terms. 
And I suppose in terms of stop, that's slightly more challenging, but I would say it's important for organisations to stop assuming the power of sport is for good and to actually actively and intentionally harness the power of sport for good. We talk a lot about the power of sport, but power is neither positive nor negative. You have to use it deliberately if you want to make a positive difference. So I would say stop assuming and start harnessing that power of sport for good. Thank you very much, Liz. Mariona, can I come to you next? Uh, yes, um, I would say as more than to don't work as uh, uh, in an isolated way. I think that would be stop. I think there are many, many organizations that have their own program and do not might be um, partnering or coordinating with their environment, which could be very complementary. Um, and as a start, I think there are many things that many organizations uh, could now have the, the energy to, to start on. on but uh, Measuring impact, I think, as, as I mentioned before, I think that should be a, a, a key issue. And in fact, uh, together in partnership with UNICEF uh, and Laurios is also part of that group. We have a working group that are trying to put all together um, a framework and indicators that could help to orientate and guide some uh, grassroots organizations on sport for development to measure impact, which could be helpful. Um, but also to be flexible and adaptive on the moment. I think that uh, this, uh, there is not like 100% right solution to and during the phase that we're facing now, no? during the, the pandemic, but we need to be flexible and adaptive and that would help us to at least be as more close as possible to, to children and youth. And Mark, coming to you. Well, my word, um, those, were, those were awesome points all. So I'd say start listening to Liz, continue listening to Morton. <laughs> okay, I think, um, look, a, a lot of organizations, uh, when we start doing this uh, safeguarding work, they're almost paralyzed because they realize they have so many gaps, they have nothing in place. So I think a message would be for me to, to those organizations to just continue continue on your safeguarding journey. Wherever you are at, just continue on that safeguarding journey. It is, and recognize it as that, it is a journey. Um, start, start valuing the work that we do in this space. Start really valuing it. We can't sell it unless we value it. So I think we need to start valuing it so that others will recognize the value. We have to recognize it first. And a big stop, this is a serious one for me, a big stop, stop, and this is for all the SDP organizations, stop trying to fix all of the problems of the world. We've, we've captured, as, as Liz shared earlier, the best fit things, the, the best ways that sport can contribute to SDGs. Let's, let's kind of keep our focus and use the sport where we have the best, best impact. So stop trying to, to do everything with this magic sport wand. That would be my start, stop, continue. Thank you so much to our expert panel for this amazing discussion today. Liz Twyford, Programme Specialist at UNICEF, Mark Mungal, co-founder of the Caribbean Sport and Development Agency, Dr. Morton Schmidt, Director of Programmes and Grants at the Laureus and Sport for Good Foundation, and Mariona Miret, Head of Programmes at the Barca Foundation. We realise that these are difficult but important conversations and we hope the conversations that we've had today will continue um, to be had long after this episode is over. 
We also hope that you'll join us for the next episode where we'll be discussing a little bit in more detail some of the fantastic points made today about the voice of the child athlete and the responsibility of those working in sport to take into account this most important voice. Thank you again for joining us for this Centre for Sport and Human Rights podcast focused on the sport-related impacts that COVID-19 is having on young people around the world. For more information on this series, please visit the Centre for Sport and Human Rights website at sporthumanrights.org and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Sport and Human Rights. Thank you for joining us and we look forward to next time.